Hello, friends. I want to give a content warning before we begin today's show. Our subject matter has to do with evangelical Christianity and parenting in the United States. For some of you, this content will be welcomed. For others, it may be triggering. I found the conversation rich and life-giving. I hope you will, too. I know many of you have reached out to me privately asking for a show like today's. For me personally, this episode feels like a risk. I'm coming out from behind a carefully arranged curtain and revealing aspects of myself that I don't typically share with the Brave Writer community. I don't want my personal story to be a distraction from the high-quality work we do in Brave Writer. Brave Writer is a non-sectarian company that happily celebrates and includes members who hold a wide variety of worldviews, religious beliefs, non-religious beliefs, backgrounds, and political perspectives. I have cultivated this atmosphere with care since we began back in January 2000. The person I am, however, is a specific person who has gone on my own journey through adulthood, evaluating my beliefs in an ongoing way. You will learn more about me today. What you won't hear is a statement of faith or non-faith. I hope you'll hold me gently and hear me with an open heart. I love all of you and am here for each one of you as you are today. You're listening to the Brave Writer Podcast. I'm Julie Bogart. The Brave Writer Podcast is designed to support parents who take an active interest in their children's education, whether you homeschool or not. Today's episode features a conversation I had with Becca McNeil. She's the author of a brand new book called Bringing Up Kids When Church Lets You Down, a guide for parents questioning their faith. Becca McNeil is a native of San Antonio, Texas, where she's been a reporter for nine years. Her work has appeared in Christianity Today, The Public Justice Review, Christian Science Monitor, Sojourners, Texas Tribune, and numerous other outlets. Becca is a graduate of the London School of Economics, where she earned an MSc in Media Studies. She is married to Lewis McNeil, who's an architect. They have two young children who, while they do not yet have careers, are very busy. Please welcome Becca to the podcast. Welcome, Becca, to the Brave Writer Podcast. I'm excited to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited, too. So I read your book. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's always fun to see tabs in the book, right? So yes, you know, the that's a good feeling. actually read it. Yep. Especially um, when they're all the way through and they're not just all in the introduction. <laughs> well, I'm glad you liked the first few pages. The rest is good, too. <laughs> yeah. No, um, I very much enjoyed reading it. I think it's a powerful contribution to the conversation that Thanks. I often have with parents. So just to give you a little background on our audience, mm -hmm. uh, we are homeschoolers mostly. We also okay. have parents of educators. I mean, parents of kids who are in public schools as well. Mm -hmm. But my community is largely home educators. And as you will be well aware, given the nature of this book, 
called Bringing Up Kids When the Church Lets You Down. Homeschooling has a lot to do with raising up kids the right way, in the right way, the way they should go, uh, so that when they are old, they will not depart from it. So Mm -hmm. I want us to talk a little bit with that context in mind. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and ask you the first question. Um, The number of Americans who identify as Christian has fallen by 25% in 2009 to 23% in 2019, and fewer than half of those American millennials now identify as Christian of any sort. What I want to say is, those are my children, right? Mm -hmm. I am of the age and generation that raised those millennials. So I want you to talk a little bit about that to me, a parent of millennials, uh, how did we get there? Who are all of you? <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Well, um, I am one. I'm what they call an elder millennial or a geriatric millennial. <laughs> um, I think that, I and I have actually heard this from a lot of people, my own parents included, my in-laws. Did we do something wrong that you guys are leaving the church is is it us? Is it? And, and my answer to them has always been no, every child. I mean, so I don't want to say every, I'm not a big fan of, of universal statements, but most of us end up needing therapy for one reason or another. Like most of us grow up having to have a hard conversation with our parents about something that they did you know, something, some message that was in our house, either explicitly or unintentionally that was tough. And that we, that, that made us struggle a little bit. And those conversations are myriad, regardless of what kind of religious, uh, tradition your family was a part of. Now, what has been really difficult, I think for a lot of millennials is that our tender age was when there was a lot of intensity in the culture wars, there was a lot of political speech going on. There was a lot of marketing being done to us, the true love weights movement, um, a lot of Christian music, uh, contemporary Christian music. And as we know, when those big, they're trying to make big audiences, catch as many people, there's a lot of um, gener- they want to generate a, a felt need. So they want you to feel anxious about something so that the, that you'll vote for them or buy their product. And when you, when you grow up and your religious tradition is speaking in the same words as a lot of people who are trying to, what you feel like is manipulate you or manipulate your parents. Mm-hmm. I think that's when a lot of millennials got to their own decision-making age in their twenties and their thirties and just started to go. I was trained to to be at combat with the world and (laughs) and, yeah. And now I'm out in it and I want to, I want to be life affirming and I want, and I'm realizing that a lot of the boogeymen that were created aren't actually as scary as they said wait, what else were they lying about? Now I'm asking questions and they're mad at me. What's going on? Oh my gosh, now I'm exiled. You know, my, and and suddenly you have these snowballs and I think everyone's journey looks a little different 
but there are several themes that you start to see emerge. Uh, what a great answer. You know, um, I've gone through my own uh, spiritual journey. I uh, became committed to Christian faith in college through the ministry of Campus Crusade, and I spent time on the mission field and, of course, uh, parented um, during those culture wars within the church, the Ezos versus um, Dr. Sears, I really landed on the La Leche League attachment side, but uh-huh. I had friends who were big time Ezo fans and train up a child fans. And then I joined homeschooling and suddenly that whole discussion around the culture wars became very animated. One of the ways that I have examined the legacy in my own life is that I believe the internet played an unwitting role in this deconstructing journey so many people have gone through, myself included. I think part of what occurred is that before the internet, we could be so much more siloed. And so once you were in your loyalty group, the group that you really felt attached to, whether it was your church or your homeschool support group or your parenting community, uh, you were not burdened by alternative perspectives. You didn't have to read them. You didn't have to hang out with them. You could just sort of read about them in the newspaper once in a while. And suddenly online, uh, I discovered quite early that even when all the homeschoolers who were mostly white, heterosexual, Christian, married, uh, stay-at-home moms, even when we gathered, we argued. And I wanted to use that as a segue because one of the earliest arguments I remember on a discussion board of women who all felt that the Holy Spirit was informing the truth of their lives was over pedo-baptism versus credo-baptism. The opening of my book. Yes. Becca's book opens, for those of you who haven't yet read it, with this heavy debate. Is it okay to baptize babies or do you have to wait until they're old enough for the age of consent, which would be 13, 14, 22, right? Like right. you, I was baptized as a baby in the Catholic Church and then got rebaptized in college. And oh my I gosh, had, that's yes, <laughs> so and similar. I, and I had an urgent baptism suggestion from a roommate who was from um, Church of Christ, who felt that now that I knew I needed to be baptized, her her pastor was going to drive. 60 minutes at 11 p.m. to baptize me in the tub. That felt too extreme for me. So I just ended up doing it through whatever my church was. Can you talk about that debate and how it manifested in your life? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. There's so much there. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. I knew this would be a fun conversation with you. Yes. Yeah. We're going to have a hard time hitting our stop. Um, okay. First, I do want to address the internet thing in the silos. Yes. Um, because I think that's a brilliant observation. And not only were we siloed, but if you wanted to leave or doubt, you faced a, being alone. Truly. Yes. Like that's, uh, I think for a lot of people, what kept them harboring those doubts, honestly, what kept a lot of people going to church was a fear of what would happen if they left. And so I think you see the snowball of, If you leave church, it's okay. You can still have public office. You can still have a successful business. You're not going to be exiled from the community. That's one. Two, for younger folks, especially online, you'll find your people. And, and that's, I mean, the, I'm not going to be invited to speak at a lot of churches, but I can be on a lot of podcasts, a medium made possible by the internet. 
That's right. And what I realized very early, I've written a book called Raising Critical Thinkers, and it's all I have it on my shelf. I'm looking forward to reading it. Oh, good. Well, one of the things that I, that really generated this interest in thinking were those early online homeschool discussion boards of women in their 30s and 40s. I kept wondering why do each of us believe with absolute certainty that we're right? Like, I remember a massive debate over the five points of tulip Calvinism. And when I said I didn't believe in predestination, one of my friends said back, but you are wrong. And then I said, well, if we both have the Holy Spirit, why are we not reconciled? This was very upsetting to me at the time. And I I really wanted to understand. I wasn't, I wasn't interested as much in being right in that moment as I was trying to understand why we all thought we were right and why we thought the declaration of that rightness was enough to cause others to fall in line. As you thought about this process of how you were raised versus how you're trying to raise your children today, how much of this derives from a need for um, relying on an authority external to you to tell you what's true. How much is certainty a part of this conversation? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the major theme of the book. Honestly, I, it's explicit in some ways, but it's actually implicit throughout. Um, And you're a good reader, so you caught that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That really what was happening for a lot of us who grew up in a certain way. I mean, you can just take the pedo-baptism, credo-baptism, for example, is that not only were we given a, a systematic theology book, you know, but it was tied to a social, familial authority, religious, spiritual authority structure and so we were basically, wherever you looked for authority, the people who wanted you to stay in their tribe would try to be there. So if it was an emotion, like a family relationships, like you, okay, we got to elevate these fathers. We got to get these fathers. We got to get these moms on message. Let's get these moms on message. Let's, you know, let's have moms groups. We got to get, and then, you know, once science became more and more accessible to people and people are saying, well, there's authority in science, you know, the enlightenment. So then it's like, okay, we're going to have whole, whole museums dedicated to the scientific veracity of the Bible. They're trying to be an authority because they have the underlying thing there is that they've trained people to base their life on authority, what authority says. They've trained people to look not at the spirit, not to listen, not to see themselves as part of a decision-making process, not to see themselves as someone who is in communication with the ultimate authority of, you know, the spirit, if you want to call it that. Um, And instead to look external to ourselves and to find an authority to tell us what to do. You want to talk about why millennials are so like averse to all this is because half of us got to age 24, 25 and realized we didn't know how to make a decision. Mm. And we're all running around looking for parents to tell us, you know, got to go find a pastor or a boss or a politician to be my new mom and dad, or just stick with mom and dad, if that's your thing, to keep telling me what to do. And, you know, my parents were not 
amenable to that. Like my parents love to give advice and whatnot, but we're very much like, you know, go be an adult. But at the same time, I've been raised to be obedient as my first and foremost um, value. And so it's like, well, I don't have anybody to obey anymore. Well, obey God. I don't know how to obey God. I know how to obey people who are interpreting God. Uh, So of course. Oh, oh, mic drop moment right there. (laughs) Thank you for that line. (laughs) Well, so of course I fall in with this toxic pastor who's very certain of everything and could tell me how to live. And then I, you know, all over. So if you want to relate that back to like the simple issue of baptism, the reason that this becomes this heated debate is because it is an issue of who's the authority. Yes. And when you have two people who are disagreeing on something that is just about, I mean, there's no other authority to appeal to on baptism than the Bible. And so you have the heat coming into this debate of, oh, hold on a second here. What's at stake here is how we interpret the Bible. Not just how, you know, what do we think on this single issue, but it immediately becomes a a hermeneutical issue. How are you reading the Bible? An epistemological issue. Like how do we know our interpretation? That's right. And it spirals out into this entire view of how do we know? What does the, who gets to be the authority? And you have two competing theologians who both want to be the authority. And and I think that when you have, when you start to look at like, oh, wow, like that translates to political power, it translates to economic power, it translates to social power, the who gets the reins matters. Yeah. And there is some kind of discomfort with any kind of multiplicity, complexity, ambiguity, not knowing Um, And ironically, uh, as a woman in particular, I think women have always had to default to an external authority. They have not, you know, historically been given power. So the way we aggregate our own power is through experience and through shared um, relationships. And when we have distrust, it it gets driven underground. So you can have the appearance of you know, I, I remember <laughs> really clearly in this one homeschool support group I was a part of, there was this thing where all the men are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the home. And so we showed up and each wife was introducing her husband as the principal of the homeschool, which really offended me because these men were working full-time jobs and had nothing to do with homeschool. So mm. when it got to me, I introduced my husband as the janitor. <laughs> And That's perfect. Everyone kind of laughed. That was true. Well, it was true. <laughs> he cared about keeping the house clean every Saturday morning more than I did, and it was the one contribution he made that helped the homeschool. That's... But everyone kind of laughed about it. But I, I remember at the time realizing that we were subordinating the experience of leadership. We were leading, but we were unwilling to say we were leading. And so, a lot of times in these authority-driven environments where we are looking for credibility to be conferred on what we believe or what we do, we're hoping somebody will confirm us. So what we had in this homeschool circumstance was, I am a homeschooler taking full responsibility for educating my children. What confirms that is saying my husband is the spiritual leader who leads the homeschool. 
Therefore, I'm making good decisions. So what we're looking for is confirmation a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And I think women are particularly susceptible to that because we've been trained in it for centuries. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, we've been told that our submission is our glory, like that our (laughs) submissiveness is, is our virtue. And that if you're not submitting, you can't be a godly woman. You can be serving the poor. You could be, you know, mother Teresa but you mm. have to be submissive. Like if you're not submitted to a man, it's all null. And so for, you've got to do, you've got to like genuflect, you've got to make the like, ha, here's my authority. Here's okay. So now I can talk, but it also reminds me of two things. <laughs> One, uh, a friend of mine who is a public office holder was trying to get me to run for office a while back. And he was like, you got to do it. You got to do it. And I said, I'm not qualified. I, I, I can't read the law well. Like it, mm. it, I'm too slow at it. The language is not, I'm not trained in it. I don't know all the precedents. I don't like to campaign. I don't like to be around people that much. Um, I'm an introvert and I have, you know, all this stuff. And he was like, all these excuses. He goes, you know why so many women will run for judge, but not for like the legislature is because the judge has to appeal to all of these qualifications. It's a checkbox that they can put before voters and say, here's why I'm qualified for this position. And with the legislative thing, it's all about just hubris and being able to go posture. (laughs) And he was like, women want to be able to cover that they're a woman with all of these qualifications, these appeals to authority. And he was like, (laughs) you got to, it's got to be more like men. And I was like, "Ah, I'm going to make the argument that you guys should be more like women (laughs) because I would love to see more qualified people in office. But the other thing about that is that um, it's a logical fallacy saying that my beliefs are right by appealing to authority, by saying, I got this from this source and therefore it's right is a logical fallacy. And I think that it allows a lot of destructive ideas to uniquely bubble up and percolate in women's circles because it comes in under authority. And so you can have women really, really going, let's take this to the next level. Let's talk about how often you need to be having sex with your husband and what you need to do for him in bed. That's like, like heresy that's just running (laughs) through these communities, but because it it has the stamp of approval for, yeah, the husband's like, yes, you know, stamp of approval. It's seen as holiness. And I think that that is something that women are uniquely susceptible to in that environment. If that's the structure you're going to, going to be in. Hey, podcast friends. Did you know that we have a free download on our website called the seven day writing blitz? You can download it by going to bravewriter.com. This will give you seven days of truly fun and different experiences of writing. Day one, for instance, is called graffiti. And we ask your kids to take a lipstick and write on the mirror or use a mustard bottle and write on a paper plate. When your kids experience writing being transformed into something that invites their participation, they start to see writing as a tool for them. 
not as a tool being done to them. Check it out. Go to bravewriter.com, click on the button that says Seven Day Writing Blitz, or simply click the link in the show notes. So you talked a little bit about interpretive backflips and knots that are meant to make sure dangerous questions do not go unanswered and that behaviors do not go unchecked. Ultimately, they are to preserve authority. I think for me, what I'm what I'm experiencing as I'm talking to you is that we have accrued to ourselves voices who speak with the authority often of God or of scripture to untangle what are very complicated questions and to give us a sense of certainty and security and calm. And what's interesting, your book is specifically sort of oriented towards parenting. And it was through reading the Old Testament every day aloud to my kids that many of my biggest questions really came into focus. Uh, When kids were asking about God opening up the ground and people falling in and dying. When we got to the flood, when we talked about the giants coming down and having sex, who were, what? what? These stories suddenly had this kind of magical meaning in the minds of my children. And I had been obviously trained in a literate version of interpretation. And we spent most of that time in the New Testament. So the Old Testament suddenly Mm -hmm. came under this kind of scrutiny that I hadn't subjected it to yet. And so interestingly, during this period, I hopped on the internet. And this is all going to be new for a lot of my listeners. They're going, what? I didn't know this about Julie. But <laughs> I just, have I been hanging out Yeah, with? <laughs> I just thought you would be a great opportunity to like get some of this out into the airwaves. But I remember doing some Googling to look at people who had walked away from faith or struggled with some of these ideas. And one of the things I noticed instantly, and you point to it in your book so beautifully, is that people just swapped authorities. They went from believing in their pastor, and religious people are trained to believe in their clerics, their leadership, whether they're Mormons or they're Jews or they're Christians or they're Muslims. It's not only unique to evangelicals. But then what happened is the ones who deconstructed and like walked all the way away from faith very quickly substituted the authorities with Richard Dawkins, Carl Sagan, and all these science leaders. And here's what I felt at the moment was— I'm not actually qualified to vet the theologian or the scientist. I have no training in either of those disciplines. And it felt very interesting to me that actually what I was seeing was a craving for certainty and a fundamentalist approach to solving complex questions. In other words, maybe people were shedding the identity of their faith and even some of the beliefs but they were not shedding the spirit of fundamentalism that was guiding their new religion of science or their new religion of being a Catholic instead of a Protestant. How do you understand that? Oh my gosh. Yes. Well, and it's starting to, one of the things that a lot of the deconstructors my age are talking about is people who are trading the Puritanism of, I have to say all the right Christian words. I have to like make sure that I'm signaling to my people that, yes, I'm one of you to, um, like we, we always, there's a running joke of you go from having a Bible verse in your email signature to having your pronouns <laughs> and, and like a land. Oh and I'm not saying those things are bad. Neither the Bible verse, nor the pronouns, nor the land acknowledgement all serve a purpose. However, 
it is also often used as a signal to say, I'm one of you. Here's who I am. Here's where I fall. And you see a lot of that same, and people who were raised fundamentalist have an inherent anxiety of accidentally hitting the landmine that gets them blown up. And so you have this anxiety now, people who've decided I'm going to go all the way to the left and I'm going to include everybody and I'm going to love everybody. And I'm going to, there's not going to be any of those old, you know, exclusionary moral stuff. And then they're finding like, whoa, (laughs) the rules on that are expansive. And this is very hard. And everything I say, I'm having to check by five different people who all disagree. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm back in fundamentalism, aren't I? Yes. And so there's, I think there's work to do. And what I, where I trace it back to is the spiritual residue of perfectionism that is so exactly what you said, you trade authority, but you don't trade your spirit. So you, you just are looking in a different direction. And what you realize is that what's funny to me about people who go run to like Richard Dawkins. And I'm like, you just ran to another modernist white man who believes that, that, that it is possible to fully grasp and understand truth. Like you, like you have not talked to a, you know, an African theologian or something right. like you could, there's so many other options. Um, but What's amazing to me, and when and always what that indicates is that if I can swap out, say, let's just say Christianity and science, and I get the same amount of certainty and the same feelings of combativeness and the same urgency, I actually haven't swapped out the, the core of me. And that the something was fueling my Christianity that was not Christianity. Something else was fueling it. And if you look at this, this is where in my book too, I get into this history of how we got to this certainty, idolatry, I'll call it, like this idolatry of certainty, is that you look at the other agendas that benefit from us being extremely certain. Who benefits if I am dogmatic in my beliefs, I'm willing to fight for them. I don't consider the other side politics. Politicians benefit when I am inflexible. And so then you kind of go, oh, let's keep backing it up. Who has benefited? Who has benefited? And Karen Armstrong is my favorite. Oh, she's fabulous. So good. Her book on scripture was fundamental for me because she talks about how holy scripture was never intended to be what we the way we use it you know i there's a hilarious tweet um this guy said did we ever ask cauliflower if it wanted to be all this stuff you know like cauliflower rice and cauliflower dough i feel that <laughs> way about the bible like, did anybody ever ask the bible if it really wanted to be a history book or a science book or whatever and the she would say no, but then what happened is that the enlightenment came along and people deciding that reason was the actual core of that's where authority came from. And so then you have people who see their authority threatened because forever the church has kind of held the keys of your eternal life and truth and whatnot. And so they start playing on that field. And they start saying, oh, no, we are reasonable. We can prove it. And that's where the backflips come from is because they're trying to prove a global flood through reason when it was trying to drive a car 
across the ocean. And so you have all of this twisting and turning, but when you look, it's not, those were not people who wanted the Bible to enrich lives and who wanted people to have a rich spiritual life. Those were people who wanted to maintain authority. And so I think when you look at where we've come with fundamentalism, just say religious fundamentalism, Christian, like evangelical, like when you think of an evangelical, I realize that they're very broad. It's right, right. <laughs> the, the Midwestern evangelicals always get bent out of shape when you characterize everybody as being like a fiery fundamentalist. Um, but the um, part of what's driving that is not just, I want people to have the rich life-giving spiritual experience of knowing God and, and seeing God revealed in scripture. It's, I need this to be right because I need to have, I need to know and be able to fight for my power. And you can trade that. You can get that just as easily from science. You can get that just as easily from well, the political any, system. I was going to say any agenda. So you you wrote in here, you have a subtitle, Hell on Earth. And I just love this. As I write this in 2021, healing is having a moment. The younger millennials and Gen Z are helping us all, quote, name our traumas and, quote, cut out toxic people from our lives. I've done a bit of this selective pruning myself. And yes, it feels marvelous. <laughs> but we have yet to figure out what comes next. The healing process doesn't end with blocking someone on Twitter or announcing publicly that we have that we struggle with anxiety. What comes next has huge implications for public justice, for families, friendships, and communities recovering from hurt. We have to move past the hell we're living in and start moving toward on earth as it is in heaven. I loved this because one of the um, conversations I have with your parents' generation, my generation, is that uh, millennials are just awesome boundary setters. They, um, yeah, they have the learned that lesson. Of their parents. Yeah, yeah, they have learned that lesson from their parents who started going to therapy, right? So we we brought about the therapy culture. I used to joke with my kids, we may not be able to pay for college, but we'll always pay for your therapy. I've been going to therapy since I was 20. I, I we know that culture and psychology is sort of the modern day religion that cuts across religion and secular life. We all trust in psychology to save us. Uh, progressives can be as fundamentalist as conservatives in terms of the culture wars and being combative. So one of the antidotes for me when I look at this sort of generational split is actually asking that question, how do we expand to include people with whom we disagree? There's so much discussion that still needs to happen on this um, because I'm with, you know, James Baldwin that if your beliefs or whatever exclude my humanity, you know, I, this doesn't happen for me, a white woman very often, but like if, if your belief is that black people are less human, then no, we cannot share peace. We will not have peace. 
if that's what you believe. If you need help understanding how the systems of our country disadvantage groups and advantage others, I do think there needs to be some grace, patience, and discussion there. And I think that we need to be clear about those beliefs, but also recognize that where we are is probably not the most conservative or the most liberal version of that argument and, and discuss where the boundaries are. It's a complex conversation because, you know, should people who fundamentally don't believe that um, LGBTQ people should have rights, should they be included in the conversation? These are questions that you can, you can have an answer to, but then in practice, it becomes very difficult because what is the, what's the boundary between animosity and apathy toward how something is affecting someone else? And there is this, um, the new book I'm working on is about how our view of other people's suffering determines where we end up standing and whether or not we validate their stuff suffering versus our suffering. If they get, if they have their needs met, what does that mean for me? And so there's this very complex conversation for a pluralist democracy, like the one that we live yes, in. Right. That's John a, Rawls. That's, yeah. Yeah. It's very, very complex. I will say this, what in what I want to inform me, both how I am teaching my children and how I would respond to them if they came home with either a view that was more radically left or radically conservative than mine, is that I want to always keep in mind that they carry the image of God and they are pursuing what they think is right. And that's where our discussion begins. And when we get to the point where there is hate or anger or supremacy driving a belief, I think we have to switch from a rational argument to getting into the core beliefs, wounds, fears of that person. Do I think Black people need to carry the burden of going through a white supremacist's fears, anxieties, whatever? I do not. The person you have harmed is not responsible for your therapy. <laughs> However, that's not to say that people who are harming others don't need therapy. We've got to, we have to be, be nuanced in who is picking up, who's coming to get their people. That's something I say a lot is like, I'm not going to tell black people or LGBTQ people who they need to forgive and what their role in this should be. I'm coming for my folks. And what I can say is that our discussion has to keep in mind that there's arguments that we're having. There's also connection and relationship and healing that needs to happen. And there's different roles for everyone in that. 
And you have to be honest about this is my lane. This is not my lane. These are my people. And the other thing, when we're talking about the people we've harmed, is that they're the ones who get to decide what reconciliation looks like. Mm -hmm. When I teach my kids to seek to apologize, it's the Daniel Tiger philosophy. It's first time we say, I'm sorry, and then how can I help? And they, you don't get to go to them and say, here's what I'm willing to do to make amends. Mm -hmm. You go to them and say, what would make it better? Hey, podcast listeners, the topics are pouring in through our text messaging pod ring is what I'm calling you. You can join it. 833-947-3684. Text the word pod. And then just send us messages. We interact with you, answer your questions about products and classes, and take your suggestions so that we can have a great podcast show. Yeah, actually, in 12-step practice, when you make an actual amends and you share everything that you think you've done that's harmed the other person, you conclude by asking, is there anything I've left out? so that the person has the opportunity to inform you and tell a story of the harm that you've caused that you may not be aware of. Because a lot of times, harm is a byproduct. It's unintentional. You're not setting out to harm a person. You're just behaving in a way that's harmful. But what I wanted to sort of ask you, if you could just sort of sum up, what is the opportunity that you see this generation of parents having in spiritual guidance that my generation missed? What is that new piece that you're adding to this parenting journey? And I know your kids are little, but but you have some optimism. You're still in yeah. your 30s. So let's, yeah, let's yeah. lay it Here's out Here's how there. I'm going to get it right. Yeah, <laughs> no. I want to know. <laughs> I love the way you asked that because it's kind of exactly what I'm hoping I can do is exactly what you kind of said. When they come home with the heresy not respond in anxiety. And that's why I'm encouraging in this book and trying to give tools to deal with our own anxiety and perfectionism about getting it right. Because if I can deal with that in me, I can deal with that in my kids. If I'm not worried about them going to hell, I'm not worried when they come home and say, mom, I'm I'm into Wicca. You know, yeah, I can right. just kind of be like, hey, can you not do just can we talk about whatever you're going to participate in before you participate in? So I make sure that, you know, you're not being manipulated or whatever, like continue to keep that spirit of, Hey, I'm on your team and I'm an asset to you. So like, please, please come to me, but not, I have to set you straight. You cannot believe that you cannot, because if you like, once you remove the anxiety of, so what, and, and you start to actually believe that there is a God who is spinning a larger tail or is opening a larger path. <laughs> um, I think a lot of this, what I'm hoping is that it loses their teeth. Now that has to go though for the social part as well. We were at a trampolinium yesterday. It's still unforgivably hot here in Texas. And so in the afternoons, if I want my kids to get any activity, we have to go find something inside and, or a pool. And so we went to this indoor trampolinium, these like facilities with tons of trampolines. 
And I'm sitting there, I lose sight of my kids for a little bit. And then the, the, one of the workers comes up and he's got the, the form, the incident form <laughs> to fill out. And he's like, well, one of the other parents said that your son pushed her daughter, blah, 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 blah. And of course, I'm just feeling all of the shame, all of the whatever. Because, and then anger at that other parent, because I'm like, what on earth? Like, you know, they were playing. I asked my son, he's like, we were playing a game and it was part of the, and you know, just like whatever, filling out the incident report. Please don't put your hands on anybody else, you know, carry on. But I had to fight in that moment, the spiraling, you're not teaching him to respect bodily autonomy. I'm hearing all the voices about male supremacy and all this stuff. And I have to quiet that and say like, whatever, whoever the voice of condemnation is, whoever the shame, whoever the, you're not doing it right. You're not, you know, try harder, do this. When he says the F word at my parents' house, which he has done, (laughs) it's a different set of voices going well, clearly what you're doing isn't working. All this gentle parenting and all of this, like letting them find their own whatever isn't working because here he is yelling, what the F, Moira, across, his sister across the living room at my parents' house. And, you know, part of it has to just go, has to be that I'm, I have to stop seeing their behavior as a product of the quality of my parenting and, and my own perfection. And if I can do, the only way I think I can effectively root that out is if I stop trying to perform for my own worth and value and spot on this road to perfectionism. I have to deal with that first because otherwise their behavior will always be the clearest indicator of what kind of job I'm doing. Yes. Yes. I mean, let's just put a yellow highlighter over everything you just said. As a home educator, Parents not only parent, but they are responsible for every aspect of how these kids turn out. And the pressure is so heavy. And often the way we cope with the heaviness is to take it out on our children. I love how you express that. Becca, where can we follow you and get to know more of your work? You're just fabulous. Thanks. Thanks. This has been so fun. Um, first of all, and I also want to add homeschoolers like I I would love in theory to homeschool my kids and get to like indulge my sons into blacksmithing. Oh, it's my so daughters fun. <laughs> into graphic design. Like I would love to just indulge that all day long. Ha- a part of what part of I work. So, you know, there's that. But the other part of what keeps me from it is I'm like, I can't be fully responsible. I need someone else to blame <laughs> if they end up in jail. <laughs> so anyway, kudos to you guys. The okay. So you can follow, my website is beccamcneil.com. That's probably the quickest way to get, there's a contact form that actually comes directly to me. There's blogs, there's, you can sign up for my newsletter there. You can also, at, on Twitter, I'm at Becca McNeil. That's the capital B and capital M. But we'll put M. it all in the show notes. Oh, yeah. So don't you know, worry about that. So yeah. you can sign up for all that stuff. That's where you find me. I'm on social media, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, but my website's probably the quickest link actually to me. Fabulous. And the name of the book, again, is Bringing Up Kids When Church Lets You Down, A Guide for Parents Questioning Their Faith. I just think so many people in my audience are going to read this and find a real companion and friend in your work. Becca, thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you for the conversation. This was delightful. 
Thank you for tuning in today. I know this conversation might have been sometimes provocative or triggering for some of those of you who are listening. I invite you to simply be with all of those feelings. I know for me that when I hear things that make me uncomfortable, there is something for me to consider that I haven't really looked at yet. So I invite you to do that and just know you are held in love and acceptance by me and anyone in the Brave Writer space. I am so glad you're here. Thank you for honoring this community with your presence. Truly, these podcasts mean the world to me, and I love that you listen and share and that you give me the kind of support and feedback that you so often do. This is the part of the podcast where I ask you to leave a review. You can leave stars or words, whatever your choice is. If you've already left a review, thank you so much. You never know, Natalie might read yours one of these weeks. The truth is I love podcasting and I couldn't do it without you. I'd love your ideas for the next topics you'd like me to discuss on the show. To let us know, reach out to us via our SMS or texting number. That number is 1-833-947-3684. I know that's a mouthful. Don't worry. It's in the show notes. Simply text the word POD to be added to the podcast group. And then just text us any ideas you have for future shows. We're already building a beautiful Excel spreadsheet with all your ideas. Hey, everyone. This is Natalie with the Brave Writer team here again, and I am just loving reading your five-star reviews. Today's comes from Lovely Life Company. In a world of burdened homeschoolers, Julie offers hope and joy. If you find yourself weighed down and drowning in your homeschool, it is time to shift your perspective. Julie will help you see that meaningful and important learning doesn't have to happen behind a desk. She gives us permission to partner with our kids and play alongside them. She reminds us that the relationship between us and our children supersedes the curriculum. These are lessons every homeschool mom should adopt early. Thank you, Lovely Life Company. Today's episode was produced by Nova Media with support from team members Jeanette Hall and Natalie Miele. I'm Julie Bogart, author of The Brave Learner and Raising Critical Thinkers. I'm also the founder of BraveWriter.com, an innovative approach to writing instruction. You've been listening to the Brave Writer Podcast. Until next time, keep going. Think well. I'm rooting for you. Oh,